The America's National Parks Podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, your source for ready-for-anything outerwear this winter. L.L. Bean outerwear is packed with the most advanced materials and innovations, from high-performance jackets with NASA-developed technology to versatile fleece that layers with anything. When it comes to outdoor comfort, they've got you covered. Visit LLBean.com to find a store or shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. I suppose by now people think of me as a bit of a nature guy. It wasn't always the case. In fact, it's fairly recent. Before moving my family into an RV and hitting the road full-time five years ago, I worked 60-plus hours a week in a big city with little vacation, and I hardly left a three-block radius. Exploring these wonderful places has taught me how important it is to protect them and how far we've come from the time America saw our wild lands as only repositories of resources to be harvested. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, a great mountain of the West, and conservation lessons learned over the course of a century. The National Park Service celebrated its 100-year anniversary in 2016 with a big celebration that drew a lot of attention to parks. It might have worked too well. Before COVID, the parks were already seeing an explosion in visitors, and now there's even more focus on getting outdoors and away from it all. Some of our parks are overrun with visitors, and we need to find new ways to manage the wildlands that need to be protected, at the same time keeping them accessible to all Americans. What will our parks look like in another 100 years? Only time will tell. But to find out about how we got here today, I want to take you to Mount Rainier. Towering over Seattle, it's probably my favorite park that I've never been to. It's an icon in the Washington landscape, the most glaciated peak in the contiguous USA, spawning five major rivers. It's a haven for wildlife, and it's a massive volcano poised to cause severe destruction. One day I'll be thrilled to visit this park that has so many features in one, so much more than a mountain. It was supposed to happen last summer for the incredible wildflower bloom the park sees each year, but COVID has kept us traveling responsibly, and a Pacific Northwest swing will just have to wait. As a part of that 100th anniversary celebration, Mount Rainier put together a presentation sharing how, through the course of a century, we went from cutting down trees and hunting bears to restoring meadows and reintroducing lost species, and how some of the best wisdom of yesterday may not be what we practice today. Mount Rainier became the nation's fifth national park in 1899, 17 years before the National Park Service was created in 1916. Those early years saw an explosion of growth and recreation in the fledgling park. By 1904, developments and transportation brought a new visitor to the park, the day user. Day users quickly outnumbering the dedicated outdoorsmen, campers, and climbers that first explored the park. During these early years, park administrators focused not so much on protecting the natural resources that were attracting so many new visitors, but on building facilities to support those visitors. Day users were not as satisfied with roughing it in tents, so hotels and day lodges were built in the subalpine meadows. 
Roads were carved through the old growth forest with bridges stretching across glacier-fed rivers. One major threat to this new development was fire, which also destroyed the beautiful forests that appealed to visitors. Instead of managing fires as a natural part of forest systems, it became a primary goal to stop all forest fires in the park completely. In 1907, Superintendent Allen started developing the trail system, primarily to allow rangers to get to forest fires faster in order to fight them. Ironically, an improved trail system also brought more people, one of the main causes of fire to Mount Rainier's forests. Practices that hurt the park's natural environment also included the logging of trees that were dead, damaged, or too old, removing an essential component of forest ecosystems. Old trees serve as nurse logs, feeding the next generation of forest saplings and provide food and home for insects and animals. Large predators like bears and mountain lions were hunted and several mining claims were allowed to operate on park land. Though these policies are seen as harmful to the environment today, they were the first attempts to protect the park's resources according to the knowledge of the time. The creation of the National Park Service in 1916 brought new order and stability to Mount Rainier. The first park naturalist was hired. Rangers became professionalized and capable of enforcing park regulations, and landscape, road, and sanitation engineers worked to improve and expand park facilities. Views in managing natural resources also started to shift. Instead of just using resources, administrators started to think of how they could protect resources. As views of managing park resources changed, so did views of wildlife management. Hunting of predator species was halted in 1924, in part due to a growing understanding and appreciation of wildlife as part of the natural environment. However, wildlife viewing was also growing as a popular park attraction, sometimes at the cost of the animal's health and the visitor's safety. Early park administrators also believed they needed to correct the natural lack of fish in Mount Rainier's many lakes and started stocking them with fish. The understanding that lakes could have healthy ecosystems without fish was not realized for decades to come. Other policies of the previous era were not as quick to change. A wave of fires in the park during the late 1920s reinforced the policy of completely suppressing all forest fires. However, the study of how to best fight forest fires led to some of the first scientific research conducted in the park. Other early research included the first glacier surveys in the 1920s, with yearly glacier recession surveys starting in 1933. More and more visitors flocked to see the wildflower meadows, often camping, horseback riding, and hiking with little regard to trampling vegetation. During the 1930s, park concessioners even built a golf course in the Paradise Valley. This growing impact of visitors on subalpine meadows sparked the first plant and meadow surveys in the park in the 1940s and 50s. Visitors and administrators started to see Mount Rainier National Park not just as a place for recreation, but also as a place for education. 
People started coming to the park to learn, leading them to think about the value of Mount Rainier's natural resources in a new light. The Wilderness Act of 1964 introduced the idea of recreational carrying capacity, the levels of recreational use an area can withstand while providing a sustained quality of recreation. People realized that the natural beauty that so attracted them to places like Mount Rainier was being damaged by human use and required protection if it was to be maintained. This view brought another shift in the management of Mount Rainier National Park. Due to the Wilderness Act, the park was zoned for different types of use. The front country, with buildings, roads, and car camping, was less protected than the more pristine back country, where the goal was to minimize human impact. This allowed for a balance in the goals of the park, permitting visitor recreation, but also protecting the park's natural resources as much as possible. Limiting visitor use wasn't possible in certain areas like Paradise and Sunrise. Decades of visitors left their mark on the park's delicate subalpine meadows, leaving them a shadow of their former glory. If future visitors were to enjoy the same quality of experience as those first visitors to the park, the meadows needed to be restored. The first park greenhouse was built in 1974, allowing thousands of new plants to be restored in areas damaged from visitor overuse. Additional legislation in the 1970s, including the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act, also brought a new resolve and dedication to scientific research in the park. From the 1970s into the 1980s, scientists coming to the park started to study mountain goats, reptiles, amphibians, endangered birds like the spotted owl, and other species. A study of native fish finally led to the end of stocking Park Lakes in 1972. Mount Rainier is also a volcano. During this time, a partnership with the United States Geologic Survey led to the first comprehensive study of the mountain's volcanic activity and geologic history. The policy towards forest fires finally started to change as well. Instead of preventing all fires, Mount Rainier National Park started allowing some natural-caused fires to exist. Fires started by people, or fires that could harm people or property, were still suppressed. But this was the start of a new way of thinking of wildfire as a natural part of a dynamic ecosystem instead of solely as a destructive force. One of the largest changes in resource protection was a growing awareness and involvement of visitors themselves. Volunteers started to assist with rehabilitation efforts and wilderness education. Visitor advocates encouraged the protection of Mount Rainier's natural beauty and worked to preserve it alongside park administrators. Many of the challenges facing natural resource protection at Mount Rainier National Park today have existed throughout the park's history. From the first visitors coming on foot or horseback to the thousands coming to the park today, human use continues to have the greatest impact on park resource conditions. The park greenhouse grows thousands of native plants every year from seeds collected within the park. Using those plants, the Meadow Restoration Program maintains subalpine meadows in the park's most visited areas, an effort that will continue as long as visitors come to experience the meadows.
advancements in technology, particularly in mapping, tracking, and data collection, allow scientists to better understand and monitor the complex ecosystems of Mount Rainier. Instead of focusing on isolated species, Mount Rainier National Park joined the National Park Service Natural Resource Inventory and Monitoring Program. Created in 1998, the program manages the long-term study and protection of park ecosystems across the country. Determined to maintain Mount Rainier's native environment, park scientists also work to detect and control invasive species, animals and plants that can be harmful to naturally occurring species. The park is also planning for the future in order to best protect natural resources from new challenges. One of the most important considerations is climate change. Changing climate conditions have the potential to drastically alter the park's environment, affecting everything from glaciers, water resources, and air quality, to the distribution and long-term survival of plant and animal species. Visitor education and involvement will continue to be key in mitigating future threats and protecting the park's natural resources. It's easy to look back at the mistakes of the past and wonder why people didn't do things differently. Why would past park administrators allow meadow damage or hunting? Do they not care or do they just not know better? Throughout the park's history, visitors, rangers, and resource managers deeply valued the mountain's environment and managed it to the best of their knowledge at the time. Today, we too constantly strive for ways we can do better, just as people in the park's history strove to do better. This park, its wilderness, forests, plants, and animals all still exist because of the work they did to preserve it. We are the future generation able to enjoy a quality outdoor experience because of the work of past generations. We can also make sure we are not the last generation to enjoy Mount Rainier's amazing natural resources, but that they continue to be preserved and celebrated by future generations. Our thanks to the National Park Service for putting together that presentation. I wish they were better about crediting narrators and authors so I could share that with you, but I can't. Ascending to 14,410 feet above sea level, Mount Rainier is open all year. Visitation is at its peak in July and August when the weather is warm and dry and wildflowers are blooming. If you're planning on a summer trip to Mount Rainier, though, consider visiting midweek, which is generally less crowded. Parking is limited in many areas of the park, and wait times at entrances can be over an hour on the very busiest summer weekends and holidays. Entering the park before 10 a.m. or after 2.30 can help avoid delays when visitation is heavy. In spring, with ephemeral waterfalls and in autumn, with brilliant colors reaching deep into the valleys, visitors can enjoy a more leisurely vacation in the park, but certain areas can close due to weather. Before making any plans, Check the current status of roads, campgrounds, trails, and activities. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with audio produced by the National Park Service, who have no affiliation with this show. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group 
For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show is sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. 